It's good to see you this morning. We were uh, glad the first hour to be able to have our online crowd back with us for uh, several months now. They have been watching a recorded message, but our uh, updates in our media era are just about finished. This morning they were able to join us online, so we were glad to welcome them back. Well, we're looking at a very um, difficult passage this morning. If you've been reading with us as a body through the New Testament, you've been in Hebrews 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 this week. I don't know about you, but me, when I'm reading Hebrews, I frequently have to stop and go back and reread and, and think and pray. And, and this is a very difficult passage this morning. In fact, uh, Pastor Jason laughed at me when I told him what passage I was covering this morning. He told me I was very foolish for doing that. But it's a hard passage, and, uh, and I've had several folks from the uh, first hour already respond and say, hey, thanks for helping with that. I just read that this week and couldn't figure that out. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I've spent some time in it. And we're going to jump in this morning in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who the author was. He is writing to, uh, primarily to Jewish Christians. They're already facing uh, persecution, that persecution is going to intensify or increase, and he knows they'll be tempted to uh, cast aside the fact that they're identified with Christ and, and kind of hide that. So he's trying to motivate them toward maturity, toward a solid um, foundation of faith that they're prepared to withstand in the evil day. Now, before we jump into chapter 6, let me say something about the, the audience. Uh, it was primarily um, Hebrew Christians. We would call them today Messianic Jews. They have uh, received the gospel message. They have become followers, but they're facing rejection and persecution, not only in their culture as far as the government society, but from their own fellow Jews, they're facing some persecution and some rejection. There was a second group, though, and that was that within um, the, this body that gathered within this church, there were some unbelieving Jews who had become convinced that the basic truths of the gospel were, were indeed true, but they were not yet persuaded to place their faith in Christ. They, they agreed with the gospel message, but their belief was intellectual. They were, at this point, uncommitted spiritually. And then the third group were unbelieving Jews who would come, um, they would gather, they were exposed to the gospel, but they weren't at all convinced of the truth of the message. Now, I mentioned those groups not only to help clarify um, what's happening in this letter to the Hebrews, but also... I think that's a pretty accurate picture. When you look at the groups um, that, that were part of the audience of this letter, I think it's a pretty accurate picture of what we see in the church today, meaning the church in general at large, and also meaning, of course, our church. Uh, in the church today, there are people who have understood the gospel message and have fully committed themselves. They have understood that they were sinners, they were separated from God, that they had absolutely no hope because they were dead in sin. They've accepted the redemptive work that Christ did for them on the, on the cross. They've received his forgiveness. They've turned over their lives. They've given him complete control and made him Lord of life. So you have that group in the church. You also have in the church today people who've heard the message um, and they would affirm its truth. They would say that they believe that men are sinners. They believe that Jesus, as the perfect uh, son of God died to pay the wages of their sin. They would say that, that they understand the message that when you place your faith in, in Christ, you're reconciled to God now and for eternity. But while they would affirm all those things as true, they not personally acted and personally committed themselves to the gospel message. And, and the scary thing about that is they're deceived into thinking that their condition, their relationship with God has changed, even though they've not appropriated the message personally. 
And of course, there's also that third group. There are people who would occasionally be present when the gospel is preached, when the truth is preached. Maybe they had a friend who invited them and they came one time, or maybe they come with uh, relatives at a particular holiday time. They would be occasional attenders. Maybe they're even searching for more in life, but they've not yet come to believe the truth, and they're not convinced of the message of the gospel. And typically, maybe not in these times, but typically when the church gathers, our church, other churches, when the church gathers, all three of those groups, everyone in in each of those categories is present. And the good news is that any time, regardless of which category a person would fall into, any time they're under the preaching or the teaching of the gospel, at least in that moment, they have the opportunity to come to faith, to respond to the message with commitment, not just intellectual assent. Now, in chapter 5, which you've already read this week, the writer of Hebrews has been explaining the role of our high priest, of Jesus. He's been explaining that Jesus is our, our mediator. He represents us to God, and he represents God to us. He's explaining that as a high priest, just as in the Old Testament, the high priest made sacrifice for the sin of the people. Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He's the source of salvation for those who obey, those who truly follow. Well, let's jump in in chapter 5, verse 11, and we're going to read through chapter 6 and verse 8. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Well, what is Paul doing? He is admonishing or or reproving those who have believed or received but have never grown in their faith. He's basically saying to them, come on, guys, you need to grow up. There is deeper uh, truth that that you can't understand because you're slow to learn. And they weren't slow to learn because of any mental deficiencies. They were slow to learn because they weren't applying themselves to learn. They weren't applying themselves to grow in in their faith and in a relationship with Christ. And he's saying, look, you're still like babies. You you need milk. You're unable to feed yourself. But get the picture. It's like an adult who still could not feed himself or herself and have to be bottle-fed. It's a ridiculous picture. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, look, we shouldn't have to be going over the basic facts or the basic truths with you again. It's time to mature. And down in verse 3, he says, God willing, we will do this. He is willing, the writer of Hebrews is willing to engage them and teach them and help them grow, but they're not willing. Now, 
the key this morning, what I want to put in the spotlight this morning, and, and what is difficult this morning, and, and you notice this if you read this this week, is in verses 4 through 6. This, in verses 4 through 6, is clearly a warning, but, but for whom? It could be, um, if it's addressed to the non-believer, a warning that while you've been around that second group of people, you've been around the teaching of the gospel, you've, you've hung around the church, around the community of faith, you've been around believers, you've understood, you've seen the graciousness of God, perhaps you've been around when, when, when the Spirit moved, but you never followed through, you never personally received the gospel, you never committed yourself to following Christ, and you're not at a point of restoration and repentance, you're, you're going to be destroyed. Now, that would be a good and appropriate warning from this text. I often fear for those who are um, in the church and so close to the things of God that they've developed an immunity. They've been in the church perhaps their entire life. They've heard all the teachings, heard all the truth, and they would nod and they would assent to it, but they haven't committed their lives to Christ. And, and quite frankly, the church can be a very dangerous place for an unbeliever. And they can develop an immunity to the message of the gospel. And there are, there are a lot of well-known theologians and, and pastors whose names you, you would probably recognize that interpret this warning this way, that it's a warning toward those who know about the things of God but have never followed through in a commitment. And it, it's a good warning, and it's a necessary warning. However, it, as I look at the context, it doesn't appear that the writer is speaking to the non-believer but to the believer. If you go back through and you just kind of scan and breeze through the chapters leading up to Hebrews 6, in chapter 2, verse 1, you see this. He says to them, pay much close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, he's talking to believers. The, the phrase, what we have heard in the Greek, implies submission and acceptance to what we have heard. In other words, he's not talking to people who've just heard the message of the gospel. They have submitted themselves to the message. They've accepted the message. He says, pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. You know, if you're going to drift away, you have to have been at some point anchored in order to drift away. So he's speaking to believers. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we confess. He's speaking to believers. Chapter 3, verse 12, again, he calls them brothers. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, let us hold fast to our confession of what? Of faith. So it seems that the primary audience of this, this letter is the believer. It, it's us. And here in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, look at the language again. It refers to believers. He says, those who have been enlightened. Well, that phrase enlightened is used both in 2 Corinthians 4 and also in the ninth chapter of Hebrews as referring to, a reference to, the experience of conversion, enlightened and responsive to that enlightenment. He says there are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, that's not referring to, when he says tasted, that's not referring to an experimental taste. If I come to your house and, and have dinner and you put something on my plate and I taste it and decide I don't like it, I, I, I turn away from it. It's not referring to that at all. And some theologians tried to say that's exactly what it's referring to, those who have uh, tasted uh, the, the things of God but then didn't fully embrace. No, 
the word taste here in Hebrews 6 is the same word for taste in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where it says that Jesus tasted death for us. What does that mean? Well, Jesus didn't. You remember the garden? He prayed, Father, not my will but yours. And he at that point knew he had to go forward with the will and plan and purpose of God to die for us in our behalf. When Jesus tasted death, he didn't take a little taste and say, no, I think I'd rather not. He fully embraced it. In fact, on the cross, Jesus was offered a painkiller to dull the pain because the Romans had simply no, because they didn't want him flinching before they nailed him. They didn't want him flinching when they nailed him and, and dying too soon. They wanted him to suffer. But Jesus refused that painkiller because he wanted to fully embrace and experience the suffering that our sin caused. And he did that for us. So when Paul says, you've tasted the heavenly gift, you've fully embraced it. He goes on, he says, you've shared in the spirit, you've tasted the goodness of the word, uh, the powers of the age to come. All that language fits true Christians. So what's the dilemma? What's the confusion? Here's where the confusion comes. Look at the beginning of verse four. He says, it is impossible... And then he says, for whom is it impossible? All those phrases we just went through for believers. It is impossible for people who have believed, look down at verse 6, when they then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now you can see, and you may have heard, you, you can understand why some interpreters think this means that Christians can lose their salvation. It is impossible for these who have believed and then have fallen away to be restored to Repentance, But that idea that a Christian can lose his or her salvation does not square with the rest of clear biblical teaching regarding our eternal security in Christ. Jesus in John 6, verses 37 through 40, he who comes to me will never go hungry. Not he comes to me and he won't be hungry, but in a time later he could end up being hungry again. He'll never go hungry. He'll never be thirsty. All the Father gives me will come to me and will never be driven away. John 10, 29, you're probably very familiar with this passage. When, when uh, you hear messages on the eternal security of the believer, John 10, 29 is often referred to where Jesus said that he's got us and he says that he is in the Father's hand. No one, it is impossible for anyone to, to pry away the Father's hand and, and you to be able to snatch out of, be snatched out of Jesus' hand. He says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Romans 8, 28 through 39, what does Paul say? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked with a seal. What is the seal? It's the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. When you've been marked with a seal, that cannot be taken off, that cannot be taken away. But let me be clear before I move on from the concept that Christians cannot lose their salvation. Let me make clear, when Scripture clearly speaks about being secure in our faith, Scripture's speaking about true converts. It's those who have placed their faith in Christ and live out their faith by obedience. It's very clear that they belong to Christ. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. It's very clear. It's not about those who claim to be Christ's followers. It's not about those who take the name of Christ, who call themselves Christians, but haven't truly been Christ's followers. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does what? The will of the Father. 
Jesus said repeatedly through the Gospels that the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see, if someone claims to belong to Christ, but they live in habitual sin, they live in habitual disobedience, if there's no life change, if they look no different from the world, then they probably don't truly belong to Christ. John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 makes this so very clear. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him. Assurance, without a doubt. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Listen to verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Now, liar's a pretty strong word. I don't know about around your house, but in my house, we didn't go around calling people liar. But he says, if you say, I know him, but you're not following his commands, you are a liar. There's no other way to state it, and the truth is not in you. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Listen, this is how we know we are in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. I like the way it's worded in the NIV. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. When they see me walking and doing life, I should look like Jesus. If you exit this auditorium this morning and you're going out on the parking lot and, and you see walking across the parking lot something that looks like a horse and smells like a horse and walks like a horse, it's probably a what? It's a horse. He's saying you need to, to look like and smell like and walk like Jesus. Eternal security of the believer is based on the work of Christ. You can't earn it. You, you can't unearn it. The question is whether or not you have really received it. You've committed your life to Christ. You've become that new creation Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. So, in, in lining up the whole of, of Scripture, this passage in Hebrews is not about a believer losing salvation. So, so what's going on here? What is it that it's impossible for after falling away for restoration? The key to understanding what he says in verses 4 through 6, the key to understanding the falling away in verse 6 is back in verse 1 where the writer makes it clear he is urging believers to go on to maturity. The problem is there were people who truly recognized their need for Christ and, and they came to faith in Christ but things got difficult. Life got difficult. They had never pressed into spiritual growth. Uh, they had never grown as they'd been instructed. And so their hearts got a little cold and a little hard and, and a little bit rebellious. And when you persist in that state, you're forgetting about what God has done for you. In just a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. It's kind of different. I don't like it as much as the way we used to do it, but it is what it is in this time. But we're taking time to remember what Christ has done for us, the incredible price that he's paid, and the debt that we owe. What is our debt? Well, our debt was sin. But he paid that debt for us as the debt we owe him is to live for him and to live in obedience and, and commitment to him. The writer of Hebrews is saying here, look, as a believer, when you, when you fail to go on, when you don't live out this commitment, you, you can't be brought back to that salvation point again. You can't be restored to repentance because that'd be crucifying the Son of God all over again and holding him up to contempt. You, you can't come back to that point. What he's done is he's revealed the stagnant, immature faith of believers who don't grow on and mature, and then he's explaining the dangerous position they're in. 
And what is that? Well, because of their weakness, they're falling into doubt. They're falling into disbelief. They're falling into disobedience. They're not strong enough to handle the world they live in. And so when things happen, they begin to doubt God. They begin to disbelieve the truths of God. They begin to become disobedient and not following through in their faith. And when they do that, they're, they're, they're just like they're siding with people in the world who deny the power of the cross and the resurrection over sin. By the way they live, they're denying the power of the cross and, and the resurrection over sin. In the Greek, uh, the word fall away that you see there in verse 6 and then have fallen away it's not, and, and a lot of um, theologians go here, and I'm not sure why, that they use the word, the phrase fall away to refer to apostasy. You may have heard that word before. Apostasy is a, is a defection, a, a departure, a rejection. It, it's a turning around, I'm done with this, and going the other direction. That's not the same word here. The word here, fall away, means to fall aside or, or to wander or to take a wrong path. It's not a complete rejection and turn to go the other direction. It's that you're still going the direction you should be going, but you've, for lack of a better way to say it, you, you've kind of gotten off in the ditch. You've kind of wandered off the course. And the reason you wander as a believer is, is there's a thread of doubt. You begin to question, can God really take care of me and handle this? And and you become disobedient, you, you don't trust him. You notice if you read through Hebrews this week, the writer had already talked about in chapter three what happened to Israel when they were taken out of Egypt and out of captivity. You remember that they grumbled and complained and they doubted God's ability to care for them. And then when they came to the promised land and the spies were sent, Numbers 14, and, and came back and said, yeah, there are giants, this, that, but God said, and we can, and 10 of the spies said no, and only two, Joshua and Caleb said yes, and the people, instead of counting on the fact that God had the ability to care for them, instead of trusting him, knowing that he would conquer the land for them, they turned aside and they disobeyed. And he's saying, don't be like them. They hardened their hearts toward God. Well, what about this thing about it is impossible to restore? Well, if you look at the sentence, and that's one long sentence there in 4 through 6, all the phrases in that sentence are present tense. What he's saying is, at the present time, they can't be reached. Because of their frame of mind, there's no earthly argument or, or no encouragement that will bring them back. So, so what happens to those believers? Can, can they ever be restored? Will they spend their entire life as, as baby Christians that, that continually displease God rather than honor him? What, what about what happens to those believers? Are they going to be without reward in eternity as the one who's escaped through the fire just barely and has nothing to show for it and even smells like smoke? What's, what's going to happen to them? Can they be restored? Yes. At the present time, we can't restore them, the writer is saying, but God can restore them. But understand, if you're in this position as a believer that you're not growing and not maturing in your faith, for God to restore you, if you don't choose to go on and you don't choose to mature, for God to restore you frequently means that he's going to have to bring hardship and calamity into your life. Look at verses 7 and 8. He gives this illustration of, of what can happen. He said, there's a plot of land, it, it receives rain. And because it receives rain, it should produce uh, useful vegetation. When it does, it's a, it's a blessing, and, and God blesses it. 
But that same plot of land that receives rain could also produce thorns and thistles. And look what he says. It's worthless. It's near to being cursed. And so it is burned. You know that burning in Scripture can refer to one of two things. It can refer to judgment or it can refer to discipline. If this passage is written to believers, it's referring to discipline because they're not going to be destroyed. Well, here's another indication he's speaking to believers. Land, when you set fire to land, land is not destroyed by fire. When you put the torch to the land, the the burning away of the useless growth could then make that field productive. You've probably seen people, and you'll see people in the spring, especially out in in more rural areas. Hopefully this doesn't happen if you live in a neighborhood. But people will burn their lawn or burn a field in the spring. Why are they doing that? To make it more productive. If, If they burn their lawn, they're burning away all the thatch because the thatch keeps the grass from growing in a healthy manner. Now, they may think they're getting rid of the weeds. Ultimately, the weeds are going to grow back, but with healthy grass, the grass can choke out the weeds. And so the purpose of the burning is to make that lawn or make that field more healthy and more productive. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying here, if if you're one of these, one of these believers who hasn't gone on and hasn't matured in the faith and can't withstand the the difficulties that come you begin to have disbelief and have doubts and you're not walking with the Lord in that God may choose to set you afire to bring calamity and difficulty in your life not to destroy you but out of a desire to see you walking more closely with him well what is what is Hebrews 6 then Hebrews 6 is just a a call to examine our fruit and our productivity It's not a case of we come to Christ and then you just rest and relax. No, he's saying you need to examine your life, examine your fruit, examine your productivity. This, This passage is not about believers losing their salvation, but it's a call to personal examination by every believer. And let me just say this. I could be wrong. Either either the writer is addressing believers who are not maturing or he's addressing that group who've been around the truth but are still non-believers, they've not genuinely come to faith. They've started the process uh, of hearing the gospel and experiencing the power of God, but they've never committed themselves. And I would say to you this morning, even though I believe this is addressed to those who already believe, either way, there's a warning here. You need to go on. You need to grow up. You need to mature in your faith. You can't live in the non-committed, gray area, safe zone and expect to receive a blessing from God. If you've, been, if you've been around the gospel message and, and you've never committed yourself to it, you're going to find yourself, apart from Christ, separated for all of eternity. But if you're this believer that he's talking to, your salvation is secure, but you're going to be like what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 3.15 when you stand before the Lord to give account for how you live life and what you did with your faith And all of your frivolous things that you've done, all of your works are going to be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ and and you will be revealed to be faithless and have no reward. So the call of Hebrews 6 is, is a call to faithful discipleship, to complete obedience. 
It's a call to persevere. It, it's, it's understanding that while things may get more difficult as it was going to for the Hebrews, that persecution was going to increase and intensify, it's a call to be prepared for that by maturing your faith and having a sound foundation to persevere. If, you're, if you know you're falling down, it's a call to get back in the game. If you're too weak, you've gotten so weak in your faith that you don't, you don't know how to get up, you call on fellow believers to help you to get up and to go on in this process of maturing in faith. That's what the church is about. It's about us together going on in the faith and maturing in the faith and being fully devoted, committed, followers of Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. That's why we do what we do. And if that's not where you are, there is plenty of help available from believers who can walk with you and encourage you and, and hold you accountable. The writer of Hebrews is, is admonishing us and encouraging us to be sure we're going on in the faith.